Hello, everyone, and welcome to Live Through Jesus with Courtney Gilmore. Jacob moves to Shechem, and his daughter has an incident with a man there. And then Simeon and Levi take revenge, and the whole family has to leave the town. Genesis 34 and 35. Now, just as a quick side note, I'll be reading all the scripture references for you, so you're free to just sit back, listen, and absorb, or you can grab your Bible and read along. Most of the time, I'll be reading from the New King James Version, but if I switch, I'll let you know. At the beginning of each episode, I'll introduce the title, so if you want the entire study in writing, you can go to livethroughjesus.com and buy it for under $5. Each one will cover two to three months' worth of episodes, And once you buy, then it'll be immediately available for download. In addition to a little extra studying, it also allows you the benefit of some charts and keyword definitions, but it isn't necessary. Okay, so let's get started. On the last episode, Jacob met his brother Esau again after betraying him 20 years before. And he wrestled with God because he was just so anguished over this meeting and God gave him a new name. And so if you missed that episode, you might want to go back and listen because we talked about wrestling with God and prayer and how God can make us new, allowing others to call us by a new name, even if we've been known by something bad for many years. Today, we're going to move on by reading the very end of chapter 33 in Genesis and talking about where Jacob settled after he and Esau met. It says, Then Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is the land of Canaan, when he came from Padan Aram. And he pitched his tent before the city, and he bought the parcel of land where he had pitched his tent from the children of Hammer, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of money. Then he erected an altar there and called it El Aloha Israel. Now, Shechem is the place where God very first appeared to Abraham and told him that the land was going to belong to his descendants. And so now his grandson, Jacob, is actually buying a piece of land there for himself. And this is very significant because this is only the second piece of land that's been bought by Abraham's family. And the first was bought by Abraham, but it was only bought for a burial place. And so this is the first piece of land in the promised land that they will eventually have for themselves that is owned by one of Abraham's descendants for the purpose of living on it. It's going to be 400 years, 500 years maybe, before his descendants will actually possess this land that's been promised to them. So it's kind of neat that Shechem is the first place that he buys a piece of land whenever this is also the first place that God had told Abraham that would belong to his descendants. Now, I want you to also notice at the very end of this chapter, it says that he erected an altar there and he called it El Aloha Israel, which means the God of Israel. And so whenever he buys this piece of land, his first thing to do is put an altar there, worshiping God and calling this place the place that God has given to him. Because remember, his name has been changed to Israel. And so God is giving him this place and he's praising him for it. And so that's just something that we always need to pay attention to is that we always need to praise God for the things that he's given to us because without him, we really would have nothing. 
Okay, so let's go ahead and read what happens to them after they move to Shechem, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 34. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hammer, the Hivite, prince of the country, saw her, he took her and lay with her and violated her. His soul was strongly attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the young woman and spoke kindly to the young woman. So Shechem spoke to his father Hammer, saying, Get me this young woman as a wife. Okay, so we're going to stop right there because I want you to remember who Dinah is. She is the only daughter that was mentioned in the genealogy of Jacob. And we talked at that time about how most of the time women were not mentioned at all. Most likely he had several daughters. And we do find this out later on in Genesis where it talks about Jacob's sons and daughters both comfort him. And so we know that he has more daughters. But Dinah is the only one that's mentioned. And the reason is because girls are usually only mentioned if they are significant in another narrative. They're not mentioned in the family tree because they marry and eventually become part of another person's family tree. And it gets confusing. And so only the men are mentioned normally in the family tree because they're the ones that carry on the name and inherit the land and all of that business. But Dinah was mentioned because of this incident. And so let's talk about what happened here. It says that she went out to visit with the other girls that lived there. And then Shechem, which is the son of Hammer, and Hammer is the one that is the patriarch of this land. And it says that Shechem saw her and he took her and he laid with her and he violated her. But then it says that his soul was strongly attracted to her and that he loved her and he spoke kindly to her. And so it's a bit confusing because if he violated her, it sounds as though he raped her. But then by saying that he loves her and he was kind to her, then it sounds like maybe it was mutual. And so when you look this word up, violate, and then later it says he defiled her, these words do tend to mean that he took her by force. But that doesn't necessarily mean that he also wasn't kind to her and didn't love her. Women didn't really have a lot of mutual consent in those days anyway. And so what it really sounds like is that he saw her and he liked her and he wanted to be with her. And as opposed to doing things in the correct way and asking for her hand in marriage, he was just impulsive and decided to sleep with her and then ask for her hand in marriage. And so... He was kind to her and he did care about her, but he also did take her by force. That's the conclusion that I came to as I was reading these. Okay, so let's go ahead and read and see what happens after Shechem is with Dinah. Let's read beginning in verse 5. It says, And Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah his daughter. Now his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. Then Hammer, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to meet with him. And the sons of Jacob came in from the field when they heard it. And the men were grieved and very angry, because he had done this disgraceful thing in Israel by laying with Jacob's daughter, a thing which ought not to be done. But Hammer spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him as a wife, and make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us, and take our daughters to yourselves." 
So you shall dwell with us, and the land shall be before you. Dwell and trade in it, and acquire possessions for yourselves in it. But the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and Hammer his father, and spoke deceitfully, because he had defiled Dinah their sister. And they said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a reproach to us. But on this condition we will consent to you. If you will become as we are, if every male of you is circumcised, then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to us, and we will dwell with you, and we will become one people. But if you will not heed us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and be gone. And their words pleased Hammer and Shechem, Hammer's son. So the young man did not delay to do this thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. He was more honorable than all the household of his father. And Hammer and Shechem, his son, came to the gate of their city and spoke with the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Therefore, let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for indeed the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters to us as wives, and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men consent to dwell with us, to be one people. If every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised, will not their livestock, their property, and every animal of theirs be ours? Only let us consent to them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the city gate, he did hammer and Shechem his son. Every male was circumcised, all who went out of this gate of the city. So somehow Jacob found out about this before Shechem and Hammer came to him because it says that whenever he found out, he was going to just wait until his sons got home to decide what to do. But then Hammer came to them. But then it also says that the brothers found out and got there whenever Hammer and Shechem were talking with Jacob. And so I'm thinking that either Dinah or her maidservants told their family what had happened before Shechem was ever able to come and ask for her hand. And not only did they ask if Shechem could marry Dinah, but they asked if they would all intermarry. And then Shechem even spoke up for himself and he said, hey, I'll pay whatever price you want for me to pay for her because I really do want her to be my wife and I want you to find favor with me. Now, first of all, if he wanted him to find favor with him, he should have done it in the right order, right? But it does seem like he's trying to make up for it now. And maybe they just did things like that in their custom because he doesn't seem to think anything about what he's done. Now, this bride price that he pays, that sounds like he's buying her, right? Like he's paying for her. And that doesn't sit well with us. But the thing is, is that that was very common back in those days that they would pay the family for the woman because they're losing a part of their family. And so this is really just compensation for what the man would be losing in their household because this girl was part of their family doing a lot of work and things in their family. So so she would be an asset to them and they would be losing that. And so he's just paying them compensation for the loss that they're going to suffer. So it's not really like he's treating her as property as it seems to us that he's, you know, taking her forcibly and then buying her like she's a piece of property. It's really not like that. That was very common back in that time. 
And if you remember, even whenever Eliezer went and got Rebecca for Isaac, he brought many gifts and gave them to her family. And it was worth a lot, a lot of money. And so this is just a common thing that they did. Now, later, just before they enter the promised land, God does give them the command that they are not supposed to intermarry with other nations. But he has not done that yet. I'll read you that. It's in Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 6. And it says, When the Lord God brings you into the land which you shall go possess and has cast out many nations before you, the Hittites, the Gergesites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, nor show any mercy to them, nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter to their son or take their daughter for your son, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. So the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall destroy their altars, break down their sacred pillars, and cut down their wooden images and burn the carved images with fire. And so he tells them to do that whenever they enter the promised land later because these nations have gotten completely wicked and they follow other gods and he does not want them to intermarry. And those people influence them to serve their gods instead of him. But that hasn't been a command, at least not something that we have written in the Bible yet. But it does seem that the precedent was sort of set that they were supposed to only marry people that believed in him. Because when Abraham got a wife for Isaac, he went back to his family and got Rebecca so that he knew that his son would have a woman that believed in the Lord. And then whenever Jacob got a wife, he also went back to the family and got Rachel and Leah so that he would have a wife that believed in the Lord. And so it does seem that the precedent has already been set for that and that it would not be a good idea necessarily to intermarry. But there's no real command about that at this point. The reason that they really don't want to do this is because they're upset with the way that it was handled, that he slept with their sister before. And so we don't really know what they would have said if Shechem would have done this in a different way. But since he didn't, they did not want this to happen and they wanted to get revenge. And so in verse 13, it says the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and spoke deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. And so, you know, rather he forced himself on her or she was fine with it and it wasn't any sort of, you know, violent rape. Either way, she's defiled now. She's slept with a man before she's married, and that is not something that is to be done. If you look at verse 7, it says he's done a, a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with her. And so no other man would want to marry her now because she's been defiled. And that's the reason that they have such an issue with this. But what they tell them is that they don't want her to be with someone that's not circumcised. And they convince all of the rest of the men to be circumcised too. And again, this is something that has precedent, but it's obviously not for the reason of revenge. And so I'll read you a little bit. When God gives Abraham the command to circumcise all of their males, this is what he says. This is Genesis seventeen twelve. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male child in your generations 
He who is born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not your descendant. He who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised, and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He's broken my covenant. And so right there, it does say that anyone that's bought with your money, so anyone that lives in your household, but it's not because of the circumcision itself. It's because of what it represents. And so he also talks about this in Exodus twelve forty eight. It says, when a stranger lives with you and wants to keep the Passover to the Lord, let his males be circumcised and then let him come near and keep it. And he shall be a native of the land for no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. One law shall be for the native born and for the stranger that dwells among you. So the reason that God said that they needed to be circumcised is so that they could serve him. The purpose of being circumcised was not just to be like the Israelites in that way. It was to show that they were like the Israelites in the way that they followed the Israelites' God. And they weren't asking for that here. So we know that their motive was not correct. They weren't doing it for the correct reasons. Being circumcised set them apart as gods. And so if they wanted these people to be circumcised, they would have also needed to say, as it did in this verse in Exodus, that yes, you can be circumcised, but the reason for doing that would be for you to also become part of our nation by worshiping our God and living by our laws. If you notice that it says in that verse, the native born and the stranger that dwells among you shall have the same law. And so it's not just that they're circumcised or or they get along or they intermarry or whatever. It's that if you're going to live together with the Israelites, then you do need to become circumcised. But that is so that you are able to be the same as them worshiping their God. And they didn't ask these people to do that. This is kind of the same thing as today, as how we would say you're born of a Jewish lineage or you become a religious Jew because you believe what the Jews believe. So there are people that are born Jews because they were born to a Jewish descendant, but they do not believe what the Jews believe. So it doesn't matter if they're circumcised or not. But if they become a religious Jew, it doesn't matter what your lineage is. You can be adopted into the Jewish family by believing what they believe and going by their laws. And so that might be something nowadays, if you hear someone say, I'm Jewish, your question would need to be, are you a practicing religious Jew or were you just born Jewish? Because that's different. And so these people would kind of be the same thing if they just got circumcised, but they didn't follow the Israelites religion, then they wouldn't really be adopted into the Israelites nation. Okay, I hope that that gives a little bit of clarity. I just put that part in about the Jews today because that's a confusion of a lot of people is to Jewish descent and Jewish faith. Okay, so Let's move on. So whenever they told them, we want you to be circumcised if we're going to do this, it says that Shechem loved her so much that he was completely willing to do this. And he did it immediately. It says he did not delay to do this thing because he delighted in Dinah this much. 
And not only that, he must have had a lot of influence with the rest of the men of this town, which he was the prince of the town, but he convinced them. He didn't order them by some sort of kingly decree or something. He convinced them that it was best for them because he said, you'll have their wives to marry and we can all live together and get along. And it's kind of sad because notice he says, these men are at peace with us. And then it says, you know, if we let them live with us and intermarry with us, then we can trade together. We can benefit from all of their property and their livestock and all of the things that they have. And so all we have to do is this one thing. And this one thing is a pretty big ask for an adult male. But the thing is that surgery with no anesthetic would stink, but it's not going to last for very long. And then the future benefits would last them forever. And so he's convinced them of that. And all of the men decide to be circumcised so that they can live together as one with the Israelites. Now, let's read and see what it is that they do once all of these men are circumcised, beginning in Genesis thirty-four twenty-five. Now, it came to pass on the third day, when they were in pain, that two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took his sword and came boldly upon the city and killed all of the males. And they killed Hammer and Shechem his son with the edge of the sword, and took Dinah from Shechem's house and went out. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because their sister had been defiled. They took their sheep, their oxen, their donkeys, what was in the city and what was in the field, and all their wealth, all their little ones and all their wives they took captive, and they plundered even all that was in the houses. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You've troubled me by making me obnoxious among the inhabitants. Okay, so we're going to stop right there. So it seems that only Simeon and Levi are the ones that go in and kill these people. But then the other brothers come and join in whenever they take all of their belongings. Either way, we know, even if the brothers were involved in the killing, we know that Simeon and Levi were heading that up. And apparently Dinah was already living in Shechem's house. So I guess he got her immediately after he became circumcised. And it says that this is the third day after that. Okay, so let's see what Jacob thinks about this. Genesis thirty-four thirty. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have troubled me by making me obnoxious among the inhabitants of the land among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And since I am few in number, they will gather themselves together against me and kill me. I shall be destroyed, my household and I. But they said, should he just treat our sister like a harlot? So obviously Jacob was unaware that they were making this agreement deceitfully because he was not prepared for what his sons did. So he must have made this agreement in good faith and he was not happy with his sons. And he explains to him that, you know, there's not very many of their family and there's a whole lot of the rest of the people. And then they're also going to tell all those that surround them and then they're going to come after them. And so he's like, I don't know what you were thinking, because now all the people around us are going to hate us and they're going to destroy us. Now, notice that Jacob is now seeing the negative effects of deceit, right? Whenever he deceived Esau, he wasn't too concerned about the other person. But then when Laban was deceiving him, he didn't like that very much. And now that his sons have apparently learned deceit from their father, and they are now going and deceiving other people, and he's reaping the repercussions of that, then he's also not liking that. 
And so that's something that we really need to take note of is that, you know, our kids and of course other people are watching us, but definitely our kids and they see the things that we do. And it seems that his sons have learned to be deceitful from him. And notice these are two of the three oldest sons that he has. And so, you know, they may have seen deceit in their father before he changed. And the other ones may not have seen it so much because he's beginning to, to change and be different. But even though Jacob has changed and his name is no longer called the deceiver, his sons are still deceiving other people. And then he's still reaping the repercussions of that. And so we just have to be very careful about the things that we do and what our kids see us doing. And if we do change and we see that we've done something wrong, as opposed to just changing and being a different example, they may not notice that right away. And so we have to also go to them and say, hey, I was wrong. That is not the right way to handle things. And I want to be a different person now. And I'm going to try to be different because they need to catch that we're different. Otherwise, they may go and do the same things that they've just seen since they were young kids. God does not deal in deceit. And so we've talked about this several times, but I'm going to read you a verse in 1 John 1, 5 through 7. It says, This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and then we walk in darkness, we lie and we don't practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all of that sin. And so that's just saying that we need to make sure that our deeds are transparent. We need to make sure that what we're doing is truthful and visible and upfront and there's no deceit. There's no walking in darkness, doing things deceitfully. You know, they might would have been justified if Shechem would have just come to them and said, hey, I want your daughter to be my wife. They definitely could have turned it down. They definitely could have said um, no. If you notice, he says whenever he tells him he wants him to be circumcised, he said, I want you to be circumcised if we're going to give her to you. But if you don't want to do that, then we'll take our daughters and leave. And so they could have just said, we're going to take our daughters and leave. You're not going to marry her because you didn't do this in the correct way. And it's disgraceful to us. And they might have even been justified in killing them because of what they had done to Dinah if they had been upfront about it. I don't know. But either way, the way that they handled it was not the right way to handle things. They did not need to be deceitful because these men trusted them. You know, they said these men are at peace with us when they went to the city and talked to the men. They they said they're being peaceful and that was all just a lie. And so that's not a way to handle it. They could have been up front and they could have said, hey, we don't like what you did and you're not getting hurt. And here's the consequences of that, whatever the proper consequences of that would have been at that time. But they didn't do that. And so that is the first thing that they did wrong is just by making a deal that was deceitful. Listen to Proverbs 24, 8. It says, he who plots to do evil will be called a schemer. And so they plotted to do evil. This is not okay with God. We should never make a deal that we don't intend to keep. This is Numbers 32, and it says, If a man makes a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by some agreement, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. 
And so this is talking about an oath to the Lord, but there's other places, obviously, that talks about not breaking our promises. And so whenever we say that we're going to do something, we need to do it. They never should have made a deal that they had no intention of keeping in the first place. You know, I suppose there are times whenever circumstances change or we think about something and may want to go back on it, but they had no intention of keeping this deal in the first place. And so that was definitely wrong. And then notice also how they punished people that had nothing to do with this whatsoever. None of the rest of the men in this city had defiled any of the women in their family. It was only Shechem, and yet all of the men of the city got killed. And so that's not a just way to handle things. Listen to this verse in Proverbs 17:26. It says, To punish the righteous is not good, nor to strike princes for their unrighteousness. And so there's no reason for those people to be punished whenever they aren't the ones that did anything wrong. That's not the way God handles things. And then if you'll also notice, whenever Jacob confronts them, they don't seem to have any remorse whatsoever. I mean, yes, we understand that your sister was defiled, but that doesn't give you excuse to do the things you did. You could have handled it in a different way. And so when Jacob comes to him and says, hey, that was not a way to handle it. He's like, what do you want me to do? Just let him treat our sister like a harlot? It's like, no, you didn't have to let him treat her like a harlot, but you also didn't have to lie and make a deal you didn't intend to keep and take revenge on this man whenever he's trusted you or kill people that didn't do anything wrong at all. I mean, <laughs> do you see all of the things that they did wrong? And it's like, that's not a way to handle it. And so a lot of times we do this, right? We say, well, yeah, but what do you expect us to do? You know, or we can't just let them get away with that. Okay, fine. But that doesn't mean that we get to do wrong things because they do wrong things. We still have to handle it in the correct way. And so we still have to be upfront. We have to express ourselves in an honest way, make deals that we intend to keep. We have to be just and fair and make sure that if we are punishing someone, it's only the person that deserves it. Listen to 1 John 1, 8 through 10. This is telling us about our attitude towards our own sin. It says, if we say that we don't have any sin, then we deceive ourselves and the truth isn't in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if we say that we haven't sinned, then we make God a liar and his word isn't in us. And so whenever someone confronts us with our sin, we need to be humble enough to accept that, yes, we have done something wrong so that God can forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from our unrighteousness. Otherwise, we make him a liar. Whenever he tells us, hey, that's wrong, and we say, uh, there's nothing wrong with that. Also, they should not have been taking vengeance. There's a difference between punishing someone for doing something wrong and then taking revenge. And that's what they're doing because they could have just taken their family and left. Or they could have just said, no, you did something that was disgraceful to us and you're not getting hurt. But they didn't want to do that. And the reason they didn't want to do that is because they wanted to get revenge on this man. And that is not God's way. Listen to Romans twelve seventeen. It says, Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. 
Do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Man, that is really a powerful, powerful verse, isn't it? Don't repay evil for evil. So if they did something wrong, don't do something wrong in addition to that. Don't repay their evil with evil in return. And if you can live peaceably with others, then do that. You know, they very well could have continued to live there and just say, no, that's not a way to handle things. Or they could have just said, hey, you made a mistake, but you came to us and you did things right now. And she's already defiled. She can't be with another man. And so we're going to let you have her. We don't like the way you handled it, but okay. I mean, maybe that would have been okay. I don't know. But what I'm saying is they could have picked a peaceful way to handle this and they chose not to because they wanted revenge. And it says that vengeance belongs to God. God is the one that gets revenge. So if someone does something that they're not supposed to do, let God take care of that. Because we also do things that we're not supposed to do. And God takes care of our sin. We don't want other people, you know, taking revenge upon us for the things that we do wrong. And so God is the only one that knows a person's heart. He's the only one that knows whether we've learned from our mistakes. He's the only one that knows what's going to get us to change. He only knows whether we need punishment or whether we need grace and mercy. God is the one that knows those things because he knows people and he knows circumstances. We don't know those things. And so it is not our place to get revenge. It's our place to just do the things that are right and allow God to deal with that. And so it says, as opposed to getting revenge on people, just treat them nicely. If they're hungry, give them food. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. It says that will heat coals of fire on their head. If you want to get back with them, just be kind to them. And not in that patronizing, rude way, you know, like, oh, I'll be nice to you, even though you've been rude to me. That's not a way to handle things either, because that's that's deceitful. Actually be kind to them. Actually let God take care of it. And it says, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. See, they allowed the evil to overcome them. They allowed the evil to take over their lives and allowed their actions to be moved because of that evil. And God says, no, overcome evil with good. If you want to get rid of the evil, then do good things and show the evil people what their evil actions are by showing them the good things the right way. That's how you overcome evil. You overcome evil with good. That is such a lesson to us because our first instinct is to do it back or to be mad or to be angry or whatever. And God says, if you want to overcome that evil, then do good things. Let the goodness win. Last verse for this, Matthew 6, 14 and 15. It says, if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive men their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. That's harsh, huh? If we don't forgive other people, then why do we expect God to forgive us, right? We may not do the same thing. These brothers might not do these same things, but they're going to do something, something that they want God to forgive them for. And so why do we expect other people to forgive us whenever we don't forgive them? Why would we expect God to forgive us whenever we can't forgive other people and just let him handle it? You know, God may want to extend mercy and forgiveness to that person, or he may want to punish them, but he has that prerogative, not us. 
Okay, so that's all we have for today. Next week is going to be the last lesson in the Jacob study. And then the last study is going to be the study about Israel's sons, focusing mostly on Joseph. And so next week is going to be the last one that just has to do with Jacob. So make sure that you subscribe so that you don't miss that episode. Leave me comments wherever you're listening. And if you'd rather email me, my email address is Courtney at livethroughjesus.com. Give me a five-star review. Spread the word. I would appreciate it. You can find me on Instagram and Facebook. My Facebook page is called The Way. And so you can go to that also. I try to post little excerpts of this. And so that'd be a way for you to share these episodes with others if you so choose. So again, make sure that you subscribe and pass the word. Thanks and have a good day.